Welcome to Square One, powered by FinTech TV. Today, I was thrilled to chat with Sherwin Gandhi, founder of Jeeves. Jeeves has raised just about $100 million in equity since launching two years ago to develop a new type of financial platform, one that can lend, insure, and underwrite capital to global companies. In this conversation, we dug into how Sherwin thinks about the payment landscape, building a global company from day one, and how cryptocurrency will change the way we transact. Welcome, Sherwin. Thanks so much for joining me. Hey, Romine, it's great to be on. Thanks for having me. Very excited for today's conversation. Yeah, excited to chat today. We're going we're gonna to dive super deeply into Jeeves and, and kind of everything you're building, but maybe it'd be helpful first for listeners. Just set the stage by talking a little bit more about Jeeves, you know, the state of the company today. So we have a, we have a foundation for the conversation. Yeah, of course. What we're looking to do with Jeeves is build what I think is the future of banking. Um, you know, today's banking environment is fragmented. So uh, just as an entrepreneur, right? If you set up your business in a particular country, you might want to get a checking account, a credit card, a loan. It's usually two or three steps to do that. We're going to consolidate that and provide one solution for customers to go to for all of their needs all around the world. And so we'll unpack a lot of this later, but the idea is to have that one-stop shop across the world for cross-border businesses to go to for all of their banking needs. Yep. And, and my understanding is, you know, the, the kind of first product or the main product today is, is basically a corporate credit card. Um, I think the corporate card space right now specifically is really interesting because, you know, not only are there a lot of startups kind of aggressively chasing the space, but there's a lot of large incumbents entering the space kind of late to the game as well, right? I think Amex announced, you know, just last month, a small business debit card as well. Just give us a little bit more perspective on, you know, the landscape and, and, probably more interestingly, why there's such a gold rush of companies attacking this space at this moment in time? It's a great question. I think with the, with the card space in particular, it's, it's quite mature in the United States and um, primarily United States really, but it hasn't necessarily uh, permeated other countries. So for example, in Europe, um, traditional cards products were high fee products. And so you'll see folks like American Express and others trying to compete potentially on lower fees um, and be more competitive because folks are using their debit cards instead of credit cards, right? And so reducing the fees, I think, is now bringing more transaction volume onto credit rails. Um, and that's, that's helping in sort of developed markets, I would say, that have been around for a few decades where credit didn't pick up. That's Europe, Canada. Then there are other markets where merchants traditionally have, it's just been a cash economy. And mm -hmm. what has happened there is companies like Paytm or Venmo and others, uh, even on WhatsApp can transact. They went from cash to fully just, uh, you know, individual rails that are aside from cards and Swift. And so there's a big gap where cards could actually become a method of payment, right? Uh, that, I think, combined with the ability to look at customers in a data-rich environment is, is giving folks this idea of, hey, let's go bring a credit card to a market where it either hasn't penetrated well in the past or simply just hasn't penetrated at all because the economy leapfrogged from cash into digital. Yep. And, so, and talk a little bit more. I think actually maybe you can help us spell out because I think this is one of the unique things actually about Jeeves compared to a bunch of the other cards out there, which is why I was also specifically in us having the conversation is talk a little bit more about this kind of like global from day one focus, right? So, so a, lot of, a lot of companies, whether it's cards, et cetera, there's a lot of focus on you know, developed world or domestic markets first. 
and then expanding globally and internationally. But I think you guys have taken a slightly different approach, which is taking this approach from being a global card company from day one. There's a lot of interesting implications to unpack there. So maybe, maybe help us understand kind of that concept and the thinking behind that a little bit more. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, earlier in my career, I was part of a global startup uh, called Vigogo, and it was a global ticket marketplace. Think of uh, StubHub, but international. So someone in Sydney, Australia could purchase a, an event ticket, say they wanted to go watch Chelsea play in London, they could pay Australian dollars for the ticket, and we would remit pounds sterling to the uh, seller in London. That was a massively complex business from a foreign exchange perspective, right? Because people were buying and selling different currencies. And so we had bank accounts all around the world. We had payment methods uh, integrated all around the world. And it was, it was just painful to even run the business and close the books. Um, we found great ways around it. The idea behind Jeeves was to really take a step back, think about financial services, and uh, get into the customers or the entrepreneur's seat and think about how painful it is to run a cross-border business juxtaposed with the fact that globalization has been on the rise for decades now, right? And so banks and uh, financial services incumbents haven't been able to move that fast because of just the way that they grew up over the past century in the regulatory environment. Um, and now with a data-rich environment with lots of API integrations available and innovations in regulatory landscape, we thought, hey, why not start with a global first DNA and build a product that you know, people want to use and which makes their life a lot easier. Today in venture capital, a lot of ventures flowing outside of this country, which very simply as a founder, you know, let's say you're a founder in Mexico City and you go to the United States to raise capital because it's highly liquid. Now you're stuck with you know, setting up two bank accounts, two credit cards, if you can get them, two sets of loans, et cetera solve that pain point with one solution. And to do that, I think starting first with a global um, tech stack, global yep. regulatory stack is the right way to go to build a truly global business. And you know that, that was this is the product I wish I had um, in previous roles to run cross-border businesses. Yeah. And so talk a little bit more about some of those actual mechanics, right? So conceptually, that makes a ton of sense, which is basically what you're saying is, you know, you can remove the friction kind of day one from any business to transact anywhere in the world. So whether it's, you know, a fast growing startup that already has global offices, whether it's a company that wants to take advantage of globalization, you know, from day one, you know, or it's an, it's an enterprise kind of all the way on the opposite side, you know, the, of the spectrum and, you know, they have tons of global branches, et cetera. Talk a little bit more about, you know, what does, what, what does it actually entail to be able to build this out, right? What kind of banking infrastructure are you building your own banking infrastructure? Are you able to leverage, you know, other banking infrastructure? Um, talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. Thinking about the, the fundamental building blocks of what a, what does a customer want out of a, a banking service? Yep. There, there are three things that are kind of core to it. One is the ability to borrow money. You know, can I get a loan from whoever I'm working with? The second thing is depositing money. Can I park cash, you know, whether it's treasury or, or anything else, um, just to keep money safe? The third thing is payments, which is accepting and sending payment. And that could be, hey, I borrowed money from the bank and now I want to pay a merchant or I want to receive money and deposit it. So those three pieces, the payments aspect, the deposits aspect, and the lending aspect, um, those are kind of the fundamental building blocks. And 
And then on top of that, providing the customer with a piece of software that allows them to do all that very simply. So what goes into that is country by country, evaluating what's the, can we lend and how do we do it? Um, can we take money in to deposit? How do we do it from a regulatory and compliance standpoint and then a tech standpoint? And then the payments are uh, thinking about how do customer, how do folks actually move money all around the world and building those integrations. So at a high level, there's a lot to unpack there um, and really survey each market to understand the customer's pain points, what are the capabilities from a technology and regulatory standpoint, and then put, put all that together uh, with, with a global offering. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's actually a pretty difficult problem to solve. The output, if you can get it right, is helping a customer do what they do on a daily basis in a much easier way. Give them the workflow or the tools that they wish they had to take three steps and turn them into one. Yeah. So, so on one side, we kind of have you know, lending, deposits, payments, kind of these are all the core aspects you're, you're aspiring to help a customer with. And then kind of on the, on the, let's say that's the future state, kind of the today state is you've got a corporate credit card, right? Like you've got a branded corporate credit card. Um, and oftentimes I think you can think about this market and you can kind of hear those two things and say, well, where's really the connection point or you know, hey, here's just another corporate credit card, right? Um, that's being offered or so. Yeah. Uh, but from my perspective outside in, I think corporate card is, is kind of the wedge and entry point into solving this much more complex problem that you're laying out, right? So just talk a little bit more about that. Talk a little bit more about how you think about kind of a branded card, you know, as the wedge, or even if it is the wedge, right, into some of these other issues and, and uh, elements you're speaking to. Yeah, it's cards, cards are great because... They're widely accepted um, in most countries. And I think over the past five or six years, uh, merchants have gotten more options to accept credit cards and debit cards all around the world. I think if you go back like 15 years, acceptance rates in various countries would have been pretty low, whereas now they're high. So what that really means is if you have a credit card, you can probably use it to pay uh, a normal kind of uh, a routine invoice, right? That product is something that resonates with folks all over the world as a payment method. And so it, when combining a payment method that works universally with a line of credit is an incredibly compelling offering as a wedge, right? So now let's take the line of credit for a moment. Borrowing money as an early stage business or as a small to medium sized business any, anywhere in the world is actually pretty difficult. And outside of, you know, the United States and a few other countries, it, it, it can be actually impossible or just very cost prohibitive. And so what Jeeves has done is we found ways to provide credit to these early stage businesses using data and at, let customers access the credit through a card. And I think going back to your early point, which is why is this so uh, compelling and, and why is there, you know, so, why are there so many folks participating in the market? It's because that in and of itself has been a huge pain point in the past all around the world, right? And so uh, we, see, we, we see a lot of folks kind of um, uh, chasing that opportunity. At Jeeves, it, it's, a, it's a great wedge into the customer base, which is SMB Startups Today, Enterprises Tomorrow. And we have a ton of other features that are uh, less easily marketed, but actually more powerful than just the credit card option. So it's a great way to get folks familiar with the product. Yeah. What, what makes it so difficult to underwrite? So especially because you're operating kind of, again, globally day one and in these emerging economies, right? 
why are people underbanked, unbanked, right? Is it a function of you know, customers themselves? Is it a function of those native countries, um, you know, sophistication of their, their lending systems? Is it you know, the inability for traditional folks to underwrite? Like why, why are folks having difficulty getting loans, et cetera, in emerging markets? be a really good question. I think there's some aversion to credit depending on the geography. And that, I believe that was developed just because a few decades ago when the bank, you know, say in Mexico wanted to lend, uh, there just wasn't a whole lot of data available to look at customers other than how long have you been in business and financials. Now you do that when somebody comes to you to borrow money. Right. A bank takes the application and typically they review it and they make a credit decision. Um, are they able to, you know, continually look at that information the next day and the day after and the day after? That's been really difficult to do in the absence of data in today's, you know, APIs and, and data rich environment. So the solve for that was to just charge a really high, high APR and just say, great, we've got, you know, a thousand borrowers. We think X will default. And if we charge a 60, 50% rate, we won't lose money. And, and I think that uh, never really evolved in some economies, yeah. even as the data became available. And so now you can go look at the data and say, oh, well, actually I can see Sherwin's business is doing this and I can check it tomorrow and the next day, or I can see Romine's, et cetera. And then you can now price the risk appropriately. Is it a 10% interest rate? Is it a 20, is it a 30? Can I actually lend $100,000 versus $10,000? Those are all things that you know, traditionally haven't been available um, in, certain, in certain economies. Other things, probably the banking landscape. There are some countries which may have one or two or three banks. They're not nationalized, but there isn't a whole lot of room for other banks to come in. And so there isn't a lot of competition to provide lending products, right? And we've seen a lot of the innovation happen in the US um, and in Europe. And I think that that innovation is going to continue spreading um, and kind of, you know, adding innovation and, and more products into these countries. Yep. How do you think about um, one of the things you, you just said is pretty interesting to me, which is kind of this idea of like having relatively limited competition or limited providers of uh of capital right and and when you kind of pair that together with let's say an outdated way to underwrite i think the implication you get of that is basically there's a huge gap of potential credit that could be happening in these emerging economies right and and one way to think about this i'm curious to get your take on this one way to think about this is if you actually do have products like jeeves etc where you're able to have faster and more accurate underwriting right and so you can kind of unbundle the traditional underwriting uh, as well as paired with additional capital sources coming into a jurisdiction, ostensibly you can float a ton more money supply into the actual system, which I imagine has a lot of then implications for local GDP, local business formation, you know, so on and so forth. So one of, one of the interesting things, again, just kind of outside and thinking about your space is there's, there's this ability, yes, to work with businesses that are getting off the ground today. But I imagine if this product works or this platform really works at scale, it would have a directive impact, especially in emerging economies of helping start new business formation as well. Yeah, that's it's spot on. And there are a couple of customer stories I'd love to, to dive into. And, you know, one is a one's a customer, actually one of our first uh, 10 or 15 customers was a startup in Mexico that is providing Internet service 
um, locally. And essentially what they're doing is they're setting up antennas and infrastructure uh, for the local uh, local population. Now, it's a, it's, an, it's a hardware, it's a capital intensive business. And for them to really get off the ground would have, would have required, you know, traditionally raising a bunch of equity, um, which, you know, with a hardware intensive business is, is hard to think about as an equity investor when it's all going to, you know, uh, hardware. So they actually signed up for Jeeves. They got debt capital from us in the, in the form of a credit card. And they were able to then go, you know, buy machinery, buy equipment and set up and actually ended up getting funded by Y Combinator because they grew their business to a point where an equity investor could look at it and say, wow, this is fascinating. And, and this actually works. Let's walk through how the, to your point, how does the capital flow? Well, what happened is the money, the money that they were spending in Mexico actually came from the United States, right? And so there was a lender here in this country that looked at, you know, that I might've spoken to and said, look, we're, this is our model. This is the data that we have to underwrite with. This is what our underwriting package looks like and what the customers would look like from a profile and the data that I have to back it up. Great. That looks like a solid risk. Um, you know, you can have the money and then you can, you can lend it to these local countries that has a direct impact to creating a job in Mexico city, right. To your point and building and building the local GDP. So what, what is happening is we're building a brand new channel in capital markets where hedge funds, credit opportunities funds, banks in the United States traditionally haven't had access to invest into a Mexico or a Brazil or an India or a Canada because the distribution mechanism never existed, right? And now we can do that, which is great because we're, we're not only expanding the opportunity for investment, but we're also creating jobs. And we're, you know, if the capital is not available in uh, Mexico or Brazil, well, we can now transport it cross border and, and have it fund a, a local entrepreneur, which is really exciting. There, there's this really good framework that just comes to mind um, that I think is, it, it kind of spells out what you're saying, um, which is this idea of a, of, a, of a system of intelligence. So it's basically the framework goes like this, you know, on one hand, you have software products and you've had software products over the years, these systems of engagement, and that's really, you know, just products you interact with, you engage with things like Slack, you know, messaging, et cetera. Um, and then on the other side, you have systems of record, right? So you have your enterprise system, CRM, you know, so on and so forth. And those two, a, a lot of those kind of software products have stayed historically relatively uh, distinct. Um, but a system of intelligence is one that kind of ropes those two together and creates a virtuous cycle. So the idea being that you engage with the product, right? And because you're engaging with the product, there's some sort of record keeping that is occurring. And then the record keeping can actually flow in recommendations, you know, smart assists, et cetera, and give you a better engagement product. If we kind of pair back what you were just saying of kind of this modern financial infrastructure and just even think about, again, the card as a wedge, I kind of see that first, at least system of intelligence from the perspective of, you know, if you go to an enterprise and I think as a, as a, you know, as a CEO of a business, if I think, you know, how would I use this kind of product in my business? I think the immediate value prop at first is, you know, A, I've got a corporate card, you know, everybody can use in the business, but then I actually have a system of record to get better on spend control and kind of spend management control. Forget even all the lending and the underwriting and everything else, but even just getting better spend management and control, right? Maybe if that framework resonates with you and it, and it, and it may not, but if that framework resonates, I'm curious just even on the first piece, 
how you think about one core system of intelligence at Jeeves. And then maybe we can actually extend that analogy and think through kind of some of these other uh, components of the underwriting infrastructure you're talking about. I think it's a great way to frame the business because there's so much fragmentation that we're actually bringing together into one place that we have multiple systems of record all around throughout the stack. There's the capital stack, which is a system of record of loans, right? And, and maybe we're borrowing, sometimes the money, the money we borrow doesn't have to come from the US, it might come from different countries. So now we're setting up lending relationships all around the world. Then there's the, the transactions that our customers are performing, right? We're the system of record now. If we go and aggregate 20 different payment methods all around the world, well, they're all, the system of record is Jeeves on all of those. Yeah. Um, being able to even take those two uh, and put them together really, I think, creates uh, what, what you're characterizing as system intelligence, which is, hey, now we can understand why is a customer making a payment? How, you know, how do they think about, how do we fund it? How does the lender at the end of the day think about it? Putting all that together and creating a great software solution, which ultimately is a workflow, right? So I think the, what, what's so, I think, interesting now is we can create global workflows for customers to help them run their businesses, right? Understand where their money's going and reduce dilution by reducing waste in the form of expenses. You can do that by setting up, to your point, the expense management policies. Um, or actually what Jeeves does is we allow our customers to pay us in the currency of their choice. So if, if a company is in Mexico and they've borrowed and if they've raised capital in USD, they're welcome to pay us back in USD or MXN. Now, we can only do that because, you know, we have insight into the way that they transact and the, the loans, the lending capital we've set up allows us to do that. And so all of that combined at the end of the day is helping the customer. And that's a really smart way of now solving their pain point, but it's incredibly complex on the back end. It requires multiple of these sort of uh, processes. The, the systems records also, it goes across regulatory and compliance, right? But it all kind of comes together into this virtuous cycle where we talk to customers, we understand their pain points, we get the transaction flow, we understand how they use our platform, and then we make it better. And it just, it, it, it continually iterates and, and makes uh, the global product better because we can learn one thing in Mexico and take that learning and deploy it in Europe. And that could be a feature or it could be a way that someone thinks about a loan um, or just the way that they use our app. And that sort of kind of is, you know, the trend of globalization, which is you learn something from one other geography or culture and you apply it to your own. And now like as a group, we're all getting better. And that's how I see our system. Yeah, like in the most simplistic way, it's almost like you can have, you can have information that feeds in and gives you just even better perspective on, you know, which partner should you guys be associating with to give better cashback or give better loyalty, et cetera. It can be something as superficial or small as that. And it can be something as large and deep as legitimately, you know, we know this level of customers or we've aggregated this amount of capital that's transacting from, you know, country A to country B or country C to country D. And it allows us to develop, you know, more sophisticated capital markets, financial products, you know, et cetera, on the, on the back of that. Another analogy that kind of comes to mind, which again, curious to get your thoughts on if it resonates, is, is kind of this concept of a super app, right? So we know about super apps in consumer and uh, across mobile, et cetera. Um, but we're starting to see more and more of this evolution now of financial super apps, right? 
So apps that can cover legitimately across the gamut, you know, insurance, lending, spend management, you know, buy now, pay later is, is kind of a hot trend of the times, right? Fractionalization, et cetera. Talk, talk to me a little bit more, because the more I hear you kind of describe Jeeves and explain the concept, the more and more this kind of super app analogy comes into mind. Talk a little bit more about how you think about a super app. So at scale, right? Let's say with a high growth startup that you may have as a customer today, but let's assume that company becomes you know, a 20, 50, $100 billion company, right? And is a massive enterprise, right? What are, you know, those elements kind of from that super app perspective that you would continue to build, you know, to enable and, and service them? Super app is an, it's an incredible uh, segue because I think super app really at the end of the day is unfragmenting several different features and, and creating a product that, that really customers love. And it could, it could be 20, 15, 10 disparate features that are great, but the sum of the parts, if you do it really well, is, 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 is just incredibly valuable. And so we had financial services, uh, you know, sort of consolidated into banks. And now we're going through, I don't know, FinTech V2, FinTech V3, where there's a lot of pick and shovel, um, you know, players in the market. And now with Jeeves, you know, but, and there's also a lot of FinTechs coming out that are sort of single country, uh, product or a single loan product use case, right? So a lot of great ideas coming out, but they're fragmented, um, again, by geo. Like I might need to go set up three different um, providers across payments, you know, deposits, lending in one country and do more. They're great. I think five or 10 years from now, uh, there's going to be a lot of M&A. A lot of folks might fall out of the race. Some of the some best ones might, you know, combine. And then hopefully we create a super app and there might be a couple super apps, which I think is what banks will look like in five or 10 years is these super apps. And so, you know, with our global uh, DNA and these workflows that we're talking about, so to your point, we have a high engagement platform. We learn a lot from our customers and, and it's a B2B to C platform. So I see it as a consumer product, at, yeah. like the, the consumer facing aspect of it, and then a B2B product on a lot of the features. Because we can learn so much, from the uh, high engagement aspect of the platform and bring together all of these different capital sources and, and uh, you know, features that we're launching globally, that allows us to build what I, I think you're right, would, we would eventually characterize as a super app, which is really just the bank of the future. I mean, we go digital, we have a lot of different features and now are we cross-selling insurance? Probably, because now we have a unique insight into our customers and, you know, they, our customer might've been with us from the startup stage all the way through IPO, right? And so that those, those few customers you listed out might actually be with us uh, through the life cycle. And now you've seen the evolution of their business. You've also kind of seen the spending habits, um, you know, the way that they use the app. And these are all, these are all things that you can underwrite, um, not only loans and insurance against, but underwrite better product from the learning side, right? So yeah, I, I think I think there's a lot we can do there, which which then just ends up becoming what we think banks should be in a few years. Yeah. So so unbundle that a bit more, right? Which is kind of this idea of like you have your legacy banks today, you've got your legacy card providers today, uh, and you've got your legacy insurance businesses. Obviously, the three of those alone any individual kind of at scale business in any of those three sectors in kind of today's 2021 economy are massive, massive, massive businesses, 
right? And so the idea of even kind of putting insurance and banking, you know, and kind of all of those together um, is in its sense quite a bit. But I, I, in one sense, I kind of feel like that if we're aspiring to that as a future, we're kind of hypothesizing that that's a future. You're basically, what we're basically saying is that like, you're going to have stronger vertical integration, right? Instead of, instead of going to one company to get insurance, one company to get money, you know, et cetera, one company to use a card. Basically what we're saying is what I'm hearing you say is that where the real innovation is going to be is actually if you put all of that into one tech stack itself, you can vertically integrate. And then really, if you vertically integrate, you're controlling the innovation in each of those three individual segments and the interlude between all of those segments. So ostensibly, you should be able to underwrite better. You should be able to loan faster. You should be able to provide better insurance. You should be able to provide, you know, better kind of card management product, et cetera. Is that how you think about it? Or do you think about it kind of differently when you say, you know, kind of this is what a bank of the future looks like? It's it's about engagement. And I think a lot of what you said encompasses um, user, it's user engagement, right? We all, we all have access to data and the way you create more data is more user engagement. And we see that with social media apps, right? We see that with Robin Hoods. It's how much interaction with the customer can you get? And based on those interactions, what can you learn? So bringing, the, um, bringing those products now to the customer, I think what we're talking about is a distribution channel. That's how I see the super app, is a way to distribute various products. And it's a virtuous cycle, which is the better your app is, the more engagement you have with your customers because your customer, like, I want to use the app. I like it. It makes my life easier. Therefore, I might be willing to use it more, give you more information. And now the intermediary, call it the super app or Jeeves, we can now say, great, this customer looks like this or does this or has these habits. Do we get into the insurance business or do we work with an insurance provider and, and say, hey, guess what? We've got an amazing set of data that might be uh, more rich than you've seen in the past, right? That could help with pricing. We could offer cheaper products because we have better data. But on the back end is, is sort of you figure out all the, the plumbing and the hard work, right? To, to connect it all into this like really simple way for it to connect the user and then make, you know, hopefully have the user use the app quite a bit. The way um, really simple kind of analogy here is just look at what's happened with, uh, you know, credit cards or even cross-border payments, right? Take Swift. If you wanted to send a cross-border wire 15 years ago, you're probably working with the bank and the bank took the order and sent it directly to their foreign exchange desk. Now, uh, if you want to do that today, maybe you're going to use TransferWise or maybe you're going to use Revolut. Maybe you're going to use Jeeves. We're collecting the order. We have the user engagement you know, process, and then we're going to route the order to whomever we think is providing the best price. So now we're, we're the, the customer facing uh, uh, piece is not the bank anymore. Now it's the, it's the distribution channel. And now that creates competition yep. on where do I want to send the business, which is good for the customer because we can bid it out and actually get everyone best execution, low pricing. Yep. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, the, the, like, the consumer everyday analogy to this is is like an Instacart, right? Which is the closest you can get to the customer, right? And and an understanding of their order, the better that you can route to your kind of whole chain of all these supermarkets on the back end side, right? And and negotiate yeah. the pricing, et cetera. And so the front end kind of serves as your for the customer, you know, an Instacart, just as an example, serves as kind of your entry point into the world of groceries. 
changes the behavior pattern from what was the historical pattern, which is, hey, let me just go to my local corner store, right? And so right. you're not as a as a local you know person, let's say in Mexico, you guys are in Mexico or any other area, you're now not restricted to say, well, what is the you know kind of what is what is a locally in my geo that I have to go to. Or even be, you know, what is my selection of kind of five stores from where I want to shop? Um, that's kind of like an Instacart 1.0, which is still, you know, it takes a long time. That's still the dominant kind of form of the, the product and the application today. But you can think of a kind of a, a 2.0 or a further down model, which is, you know, not even saying, hey, I want to shop at Whole Foods and this and this and this, but rather I just want, I want bananas. I want it at the best price. I want it the fastest. I want it at the highest quality. You guys have aggregated all the data. You figure out from where it's coming from. Really, at the end of the day, my goal is not to go to Whole Foods to buy a banana. I might go to Whole Foods because I trust it. I, I use it as a proxy for trust of quality, convenience, you know, price, repeatability, so on and so forth. But really, at the end of the day, you're solving for can you know where can you get the banana from somewhere? That's that's kind of how I think of like the super apps evolving in this space. Which is at the end of the day, nobody wants to go to a bank, to an insurance provider, et cetera, for the sake of it. They just yeah. want the best product that fits into, you know, that's all non-core stuff to running your day-to-day -day operation, right? And so you want the best rates, you kind of want predictability, all that stuff, so that you can just focus more and more of your time on running your actual business. Right, it's the the aggregators were really popular, right? Like 10 or 15 years ago, but it it was great to see all the bananas in one place, but you're like, okay, I just want a quality banana at the best price. Can you, can you figure that out? And that's that it's, it's, it's the system of intelligence idea that you, you brought up earlier, which is, okay, can the platform just figure it out? Right. There's all these opportunities, all these options, just please figure it out and then deliver what I want, which is a quality product, the lowest price or service. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's like in one sense, like the 1.0 of this entire world was aggregate, aggregate, aggregate to get better economies of scale. And in that aggregation, the advantage of the aggregation was economies of scale. The disadvantage of aggregation was getting further and further away from the customer. And so by definition, while you were providing economies of scale or better pricing for a segment of the customer base, or segment of the population, the same at the same time, the derivative impact of that was you were leaving a portion of the customer base to basically be underserved or in some cases unserved. Right. And so this, this kind of thesis or theory, it, it feels like it's it's furthering the curve now, which is to say you can unbundle the components that gave economies of scale and you can still pass on that same pricing through the use of data, et cetera. But because you've unbundled it, the implication is you can further customize it, which means you can expand the market. You can serve more people. Yeah, 100%. And, and what we're doing with the payment methods is today. So the wedge, right, it's the card. Now yep. we add foreign exchange to that. So you can now send a wire or a SWIFT payment. Um, then we add local payments. You can do an ACH, you can do an FPS if you're in the UK or EFT in Canada. Uh, stablecoin, I think there's a huge opportunity to work with stablecoin as a, as a form of, of you know, transferring capital. And then we have our own rings, right? Because Jeeves mm -hmm. is such a global company, now we have subsidiaries all over the world and we can, we can create our own payment rails. And, the opportunities are sort of, to your point, you're, you're taking a lot of things that are traditionally fragmented, bundling them in a really intelligent way, and then building easy workflows, which could be, can I buy this quality banana at the lowest price? Can I send a payment to the UK at the cheapest rate? Or, you know, maybe it's a buy now for later product, whatever it is, 
that that's the opportunity, right? And, and I'm agnostic really to the way that folks make payments. It doesn't matter. As long as you can use your capital and store your capital and get whatever it is you're trying to get done in the easiest, cheapest way possible, like that's, that's a huge win. And the more customers we have on the platform, the more opportunities it creates for those uh, additional product lines. Like it's sort of the idea of network effects where you have one customer on and then another one and another one, and now they can interact with each other. And it actually builds a lot of um, you know, power within the network to underwrite, send payments, do all the things that folks wanna do um, to build their businesses out. Yeah. Talk, talk about the stablecoin concept a little bit more. I've I've been I've been looking into a couple. You know, there's obviously centralized stablecoins with Tether and, and kind of US uh, USDC, etc. Um, but there's there's a decentralized stablecoin now that's being built, um, and it's it's one of the more popular cryptocurrencies now, Terra or the tokenist Luna. Um, and what was was really interesting in that story, which I think kind of applies, is they've similarly, I think through a subsidiary, sort of they formed. Um, a payments company or payments network called Chai, and it's in Korea. And basically the idea and the concept, and I, I think this is like the genius part of it, is customers are basically on-ramping to using the power and the benefit of a stable coin in crypto, but they're not having to actually on-ramp into crypto, right? And so what, from their perspective, you know, they are paying in their localized currency. It is getting transferred in kind of the receipt from, uh, from customer to merchant, right into the appropriate local currency and it's being pegged off of a decentralized stable coin. And then it's being received by the merchant in the appropriate local currency, right? And so it's really kind of this beauty of transacting in US dollars and you know, being received in Korean won, et cetera, but not having to, you know, as a customer getting on-ramped into crypto, which you know, ideally if we, uh, and, and hopefully if we kind of follow the, the normal progress or train of technology, these things get easier and easier and easier. But right now you actually have to be pretty technical to actually um, transact in cryptocurrency, right? But this idea just in concept is really interesting because I think there's huge on-ramps you know, for folks. And I totally buy the global kind of cross-border nature of using things like stable coins um, in, way, in ways in which you know, the fee structure itself, that cost of capital can be very, very low for, for folks as well. Yeah, the fee structure is low. It's also traceable, right? So uh, Swift, you're looking at getting an MT103 confirmed for anyone who knows out what that is. It's you actually have to find it, and it's a you know it's a process associated just with Swift. Now, if you send if you use some other method of payment to send cross border, I don't know. You have to think about what the confirm there looks like. With stablecoin, it's traceable. It's on the blockchain, and um, the application you just talked about, I've been seeing that a lot more, which is if I want to send uh, money to a different country, I might be remitting USD and someone might be, re you know, receiving Indian rupees, but what's happening in between, it could be transacting over, I mean, who knows, right? Stablecoin is kind of another, uh, you know, tradition. So MasterCard has MasterCard Send, Visa has Visa Direct, there's Swift, there are other protocols that are available. And now we have, to your point, multiple chain blockchains that are kind of addressing this. It's definitely a new conduit to transfer capital. It's traceable. And um, I think it's actually, what I'm seeing a lot of these companies offer is this use case, which is, hey, we do FX, but it's cheaper because we do it over stablecoin. Yeah. What I'm really interested in is what is V2 of that? A lot of the like a lot of these companies are offering solutions to the old way of kind of we think about transferring money, which is X to Y. And now what what is the next implementation of a stable coin? I think there are probably 
a lot of things we could think about. One is, um, I mean, especially as, as I think countries come up with their own versions of, you know, converting fiat to stablecoin, yeah. that's going to be really interesting because yeah. I wonder if, is there a medium in between or is there not, does it go direct, you know, from country to country? Um, I'm curious, like, what do you think happens in the next five to 10 years with that aspect? Yeah, I, well, I think it's, I think it's just really interesting. I mean, I think ultimately all of these things become a function of, you know, a regulatory bodies on one hand, right? Capital providers or capital lenders in the middle on the other hand, like the actual folks that are providing the credit. And then the third is just ease of consumer use, right? And, and I think that the construct and the structure, I think the technology is there, um, but what I think the challenge in this space prototypically and innovation in this space is how highly regulated it's been, right? And so I think you have to find a way in which for customers, it's very, very easy to transact. And you already see that kind of in, in Chai, I think it's, it's the third largest payment system in Korea already, right? So the technology's there, users love it, et cetera. I think in, depending on the local jurisdiction that you're actually in, it has to be looked upon as an expansive opportunity, right? To the capital providers that are in that geo, right? Or offering capital providers that are in that geo to move out of that geo and compete in other geos. Mm -hmm. And I think then for regulators, it has to be positioned and framed as, look, we are literally increasing the local GDP, GDP of your geo, right? Because if you think about what regulators really, regulators really care about at the end of the day, um, in concert with politicians is election and power and control, which is interesting when it's juxtaposed against stable coins and cryptocurrency, which by definition is lack of control, right? right. And so I think there, and, and I think that's kind of what we see with the tension with the SEC right now with a lot of things on crypto is it is this tension of control as much as it is, you know, kind of shrouded in consumer protection, so on and so forth. And so I think the only way that this really flies to me is it's actually less of a product and technology challenge um, because I, I'm endlessly optimistic and bullish on, on smart technologists and product people and, and founders. Um, I think it's a lot more actually, especially in emerging economies around the regulatory piece, as well as around, um, you know, what's just the landscape of lenders or capital providers in that geo. And if folks lean into this and say, this is an expansive opportunity, or they look at it in the more short-sighted way and say, this is competitive with our products, right? I do think the countries around the world that are able to come up with the right regulatory structure are going to create their own system of intelligence of sorts, because they're going to attract, you know, the best developers, the best product people, et cetera, to work in those regions and locations. Because I think if there's one thing we've seen with crypto in general is folks that are very into crypto are not afraid of jurisdiction flight and they are going to go to the most hospitable environment for cryptocurrencies. So I, I think a lot of that really depends and really changes as a function, you know, of which jurisdictions are most friendly, friendly to this. What's uh, the policy aspect is so interesting because pol monetary policy, a lot of it is controlling money supply. And there are a couple of ways that we do it. The blockchain actually can give a very surgical way to yeah. control money supply, right? Uh, which which has it. So it's an interesting aspect to look at, which is they're unregulated, uncontrollable. But on the other side, uh, the blockchain is actually it has it gives you quite a bit of control and quite a bit of precision. Which I think you know I'm sure central governments are thinking about that because it's very attractive, right? Today it's harder to track, you know, it'd be harder to track kind of a paper, a piece of paper currency 
versus an actual, you know, part of a blockchain. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the biggest challenge is, is kind of, it's like, it, again, it's not a product and technology challenge. It's kind of like a hearts and mind challenge, right? So, you know, you hear about, uh, not to devolve this into totally a cryptocurrency conversation, but you, you hear a lot of kind of, you know, two sides of the same, uh, two different sides of a message coming out of the same mouth, right? So in one sense, it's, you know, cryptocurrencies are bad because of the amount of, you know, kind of dark money, dark world type activity they facilitate. Um, and that is said with the same straight face by regulators that don't acknowledge that US dollars, right, also admonish those same types of activities and candidly in much, much higher volumes and much, much higher scale, right? And so it's less about the issue of kind of illicit activity is much less so about is it in USD or in cryptocurrency? I mean, pragmatically, it would be better that it's in cryptocurrency because to your point, it's traceable, right? Uh, yeah. But I think a lot of it is hearts and minds, right? It's an old money system. It's an old money understanding of traditional financial systems. And it's conceptually very difficult to break away from that type of understanding into a new world. And so I think what, what that translates into is a lot of these types of juxtapositions, which candidly from a technology first perspective, or even from a first principles perspective, don't really make that much sense, right? Because ostensibly you would want a bunch of illicit activity on something that is traceable. It makes it a lot better. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then, then you can, you can track it down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So I, I think that that speaks to the core and I, I'm interesting. I'll kind of flip it back to you, which is how do you think about kind of at more at, at kind of five, 10, 15 years out also, how do you think about the role of crypto in your business? I mean, it's an interesting juncture in time because I think a lot of what happens in conversations around crypto is, you know, today it's a lot of, um, using crypto, it's using solutions to find a problem. It's not finding problems and then using and then developing a solution. So you hear a lot about, I mean, this has kind of shrouded a lot of the conversation around DAOs, et cetera, which, you know, DAOs can have their own merit in one sense, but in, in other senses, it's it's kind of like younger generations have discovered Kickstarter or, or, uh, or, or crowdfunding platforms, right? And so the trick is not using crypto to solve everything. It's to really say, where is, they, where is there a genuine problem that cryptocurrency can actually be a better solution? And so for your business, it's a very interesting point in time because A, you know, in one sense, you are solving for very, very legacy kind of methodologies, legacy systems. But in the same vein, you have to be very thoughtful and considerate of what is happening in cryptocurrency because otherwise that is the next wave of disruption to your business in the same way that you are disrupting the legacy business. So I'm curious how just how you think about maybe crypto more broadly in, in the context of your business, but also just the tension of kind of, you know, operating with that bound of, you know, disrupting a prior enterprise and kind of keeping on the horizon for disruption potential for your business itself. Uh, you, you touched upon part of the vision that I haven't, it, it's always, you know, I've thought a lot about it but it's a little early. And, and so there, there's two aspects to cryptocurrency. One is there's stable coin, right? And, and that is much closer to the way the world works today. Yeah. And I think much more tangible for some of the workflows that we're solving for. Um, and so I think, I think we start adopting that in the near term. And, and I mean, very near term, right? So uh, providing yet another payment method really to reduce the friction of one of our customers either sending or being able to receive money. 
right? Yeah. Just give them all the tools that they need. Now, multi-currency, uh, what we talked about earlier in, the, in this uh, podcast was really fiat currency balance sheets. Yeah. Okay. But there's, if you look at BlockFi, if you look at uh, a lot of these companies, they have multi-currency balance sheets. It's fiat and it's crypto. Like crypto, there are several currencies in crypto and you can have a multi-currency balance sheet with that. Where I'm going with this is I think that uh, the tension should actually be embraced, right? Because ultimately, whether someone wants to transact in Bitcoin or pick any of the other coins that are out there, uh, let them do it and and solve for the workflow right now that's there's a lot of regulatory compliance and and technology um, aspects to think about there but it really brings together the sort of the old school and the newer technologies and a a lot of businesses do transact in bitcoin and in you know other cryptocurrency stablecoin etc so I think it's something we embrace and I think it's probably not 10 years out. It's probably a lot closer than that Um, because it's not, it's not a question of, you know, if it's a question of when, because these are, these are currencies, they really are. And and folks are transacting in them. I'd love nothing else than to support, you know, any way of, of sort of distributing capital back and forth. One thing, one thing that I thought was really interesting, these, these, uh, credit facilities that we talked about. So in, in plain speak, all that really is, is it, it's a big loan that we take out from a hedge fund or a bank, then we can then take some of it and give it to one of our customers as a loan, right? So you could slice that big loan into hundred or 200 loans to, to your end customer. Um, traditionally, those hedge funds and credit opportunities funds, they've been funded by other investors yeah. putting in fiat money like writing a hundred million dollar check into, you know, call it a a KKR, right? And KKR might lend to someone. I've been seeing deals come through uh, directly to me where the funding is not coming from a fiat LP, but actually from DeFi, Hmm. which is really interesting because a lot of folks have a lot of cryptocurrency to park today. And when you look at how banks have been operating, like take, trading stocks at a bank, if there's just a whole bunch of inventory of Apple or, or, you know, pick a stock, the bank will lend it out to someone else who needs it at a price, right? And and that price becomes very expensive when it's a really highly shorted stock. Now that's happening in crypto, which is why the rates are what they are with DeFi. They're pricing in the risk of loss, plus just somebody might be trading that actively, right? So now what's happening is folks are borrowing it and actually trying to disintermediate traditional capital markets and actually make these massive loans, which are securitizations and credit facilities, but funded by crypto. And then you can borrow it in crypto or they'll convert it to fiat, like the example you made earlier. So it's, it's, you know, crypto is not just sort of, there's obviously the illicit activities that we talked about, you know, earlier that are happening, but there's also a ton of other stuff, but it's not now just buying a product or a service with it. It's actually funding capital markets and disintermediating the way that tra- capital markets have traditionally worked, which is really interesting. Yeah, I think I think it, it basically just goes back to if the north star for the company or the north star of the vision is basically providing better financial products. So whether that's access to capital, whether it's transacting capital, whether it's uh, recording capital, right, etc. It fundamentally, again, it, it whether it's crypto, whether it's fiat, whatever it might be, kind of fits into being the mechanism of delivery 
of better financial products, right? And so the the archetype or the way to think about it less so becomes, you know, we are doing X and then crypto could disrupt us. It really more so kind of just feeds organically into the product roadmap because you're ultimately consistently looking for better ways to deliver the core service that you're that you're bringing out. I mean, I from my perspective, there's tons of products even I see that are starting to target, you know, SMBs or so that are like treasury products, for example, right? It's you know, it's it's store your cash reserves, and instead of getting eaten by inflation by six percent, you know, we'll give you five six percent yield, right? And we'll we'll take care of all the advanced custody, you know, so on and so forth. Um, which is a huge, you know, kind of complex on-ramp for most businesses, right? It's how do you get involved in actually the custody, the securitization, you know, so on and so forth. And so yeah. more businesses or more products starting to say, how do we abstract away the technical layers and the technical challenges of crypto and give you kind of the benefits? And I, I think that enlarges actually what I really like about your business, which is kind of the concept of the idea is how do you abstract away just a lot of the difficulty of transacting cross-border? right? Mm -hmm. Actually getting underwritten, et cetera, and allow you to get kind of the end product, which is access to capital, you know, and better storage and understanding of your capital usage so that you can work on your core business, right? And spend your core time accordingly. That's right. Packaging it up into a um, super app or whatever we want to call it, but a software layer that solves for these workflows to operate cross-border, you know, connecting that with accounting software around the world, connecting it with the ability to do taxes easily, being that system of record and aggregating all the complexities and just allowing customers to run their businesses, there's huge value to that. And it's, it's something that just hasn't been done in the past that I'm really excited about. It, it feels like we're doing something new. And I think we are, uh, when we look at uh, a lot of the bank, when I actually, when I talk to a lot of the banks that have been around for a while, they say, this is really interesting. This actually could be a great partnership opportunity for us to actually refer customers to you where we don't have the ability to have international banking services or a cohesive international solution, right? Where somebody's in UK, somebody's in the US and they just want an unfragmented view into what they're doing on a daily basis for banking. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if you go back to what we were talking about earlier, kind of the, the, the downside of kind of traditional aggregation, it's a ton of customers have basically been left underserved and those traditional institutions don't have the infrastructure or candidly the wherewithal, you know, to chase after what would be lower margin customers in their way of underwriting, right? And so there can be a huge advantage to saying, great, there's now an opportunity to service that customer base. It's another revenue channel, another customer, you know, channel, but we have to do it kind of via partnership, you know, where we can actually serve it, uh, serve it appropriately. Sure. And I, I think we could, we could talk about this for, for hours and um, I'm, I'm so glad you came on, you know, today. I think this is one of the most interesting problems and domains in general in business right now. And it's got just a very interesting confluence of product changes, you know, actual fundamental technology innovation, capital markets innovation. And at the end of the day, you know, the companies that do solve this, um, of course, are going to compete with one another, but really collectively, they're going to bring up, I think, human potential. They're going to put more companies in business. They're going to allow more, you know, job creation, et cetera. Um, so it's just a very inspiring problem, you know, you're, you're working on. So I'm, I'm so appreciative that you, you spent the time and, and kind of educated us a little bit more about, you know, how you guys are thinking about it. Jeez. Oh, first of all, I really appreciate that. I mean, I'm, uh, it's an honor to be on here. I'm a big fan of your podcast and all the work that you're doing. Um, and to have this conversation, I think the, the vision, you know, today 
there's so much more to it. And this is really the first time that I've unpacked it in such a you know, intelligent and engagement, engaging way. We have an opportunity to put sort of, you know, traditional markets and sort of new fintech, new technologies all together with the end product being more jobs, more businesses and more innovation. It's, you know, helping small businesses and ultimately working with the Pepsis and the Coca-Cola's of the world, we're driving innovation and we're driving new jobs. And that's incredibly rewarding. It's a big problem. It's a big challenge. And that's why it's so interesting. So yeah. really appreciate you diving into it with me. Thanks so much, Sherwin. Appreciate it.